This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Alex Sintner, and this episode is going to sound a little bit different than your typical episode because this is the Read Amanda's Book episode of Media Business Matters. I really should throw out a a shout-out there to Alan Seppenwall, whose refrain of, buy my book whenever his books come out, I'm kind of ripping off here. But that's because Amanda has a new book. It is called We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet Revolutionized It All. This episode is going to focus on the topics it covers and some of the questions I had after reading it for Amanda. And I'm hoping this will lead to a discussion on what are really interesting topics and kind of general themes for our podcast as a whole. So, Amanda Lotz. Tell us a little bit more about the book and kind of what your goals were when writing about it. So the book is a 20-year chronology exploring how and why television changed uh, starting in 1996 and going up through 2016. And my goal, it started with questions that I, despite the fact that I have been studying the television business, really pretty much focused since 2003, I didn't know what the story was. I knew bits and moments and things that had happened, but I, I couldn't put it all together. Um, and, and there were just parts that I was you know, sort of curious to explain. So I set out to figure out the, the answers to sort of the question of, you know, why did cable change? Because I, I remember when cable didn't have original programming. And it was also driven a bit by a sense of the, the, the current moment, um, my current moment being like about the last decade, in which there's so much attention to the arrival of internet distribution uh, in, for television. And, and indeed, that's an important story, which is why it's the second half of the book. But the way in which that earlier change had kind of gotten overshadowed. Um, and, and so I wanted to sort of figure out how the two, if the two were related. Which it turns out, you know, if you look at kind of what you wrote about the book and even what we've covered on our show, our show covers, we launched in January 2016. Some of the stuff at the end of your book is stuff that, quite frankly, we've talked about. We've had episodes on some of the topics and some of the chapters in this book. Imagine that. Yeah, right? So did you achieve the goals that you had set out for yourself? Yeah, I mean, because they are really two goals. I mean, one was to answer my questions, and and I did that, and and so that was gratifying. Um, uh, <laughs> the second is that has to do with the nature of the book, um, and I have endeavored here. Um, only our readers will be able to tell me whether or not I succeeded, but I endeavored to write a book for an audience broader than just academics. That was really difficult. Um, there, there isn't. It turns out a manual. It was sort of a matter of divining my way along with, without a lot of guidance. And so there was just a lot more hitting my head against the wall, not because I couldn't find the answer to the questions that I was looking for, but just like how to convey what are often really complicated business practices in a way that, you know, sort of my running test is, how would I explain this to my mother? That was hard. <laughs> so what you're saying is that even the non-academics in our audience should look at your book. I would hope so. And I really had this sense that 
there has been so much writing about the television created in this period, you know, arguably more than ever before. Um, the attention of outlets like the New York Times to television as an important form, you know, that, that really happened in this 20-year period that I'm looking at. And so given that there seems to have been so much writing about the shows of television in this period, I hoped or believe that there is also an audience out there that is curious about how and why those shows came to be. And that's that's really who this book is speaking to. We've kind of introduced the two parts mm-hmm. that this book has broken down into. The first part of your book is on cable, and the second part of your book is on kind of internet distribution. And so why did you choose kind of those two facets? Because those clearly were not the only producers of television in those eras. Correct. The first half of the book is really the story of how cable went from being this backwater of programming that people made fun of, right? And, like, I remember that for, you know, a good part of my life. That I was I, I understand. That's that's why we're good to talk to each other. <laughs> we have different experiences. Yes. But um, so for someone like me, it's just this, like, profound change to now find that it's only cable shows that are nominated for awards and, and things like that. And so... So figuring out how that happened um, ended up being its own story. And and I didn't know if it was going to be one part or two. I didn't start out necessarily with a chronological organization. It just sort of, as I put the pieces in place, it, it just became clear that, that there is this one really big transition that starts around 96, 97, and has pretty much played itself out by 2010. Uh, and that's that. That's the cable story, right? How we go from cable channels producing original series that don't get a lot of attention at first, but then by 2010, we have The Walking Dead that is garnering more audiences than a broadcast network show. The right? Walking Dead was the top show on television for several seasons of its run. That's an extraordinary range of change in really just a decade. Uh, and, and, and then importantly as well, which I didn't realize until I'm, you know, sort of putting together the timeline on my whiteboard, all of that has happened, 2010, before the big arrival of internet distributed television. Of course, there was video distributed online. Well, before that, I'm very aware. But I I really argue that 2010 is the turning point in terms of internet distributed television, a video form that is approximating television uh, due to the launch of, of the Netflix app, and that's the year that HBO Go launches. Mm-hmm. And and again, as someone who experienced this change, there are just these moments of this transition, and the first time I logged into HBO Go was one of them. That experience was so profoundly different than any other experience of video that I'd had to that date that it was sort of, it was one of those aha moments where the sense that everyone had that something big was coming, but no one really knew what it was. And then, yeah, this is a game changer. Uh, It all came together. So one of the main differences between cable and internet distribution is streaming sites like Netflix and Amazon have resources well beyond how you describe the basic cable networks. Because when you described how the basic cable networks were budgeted when they were launching, they barely had money to scrape together for original series, and they had trouble mm-hmm. finding studios to produce things, which is, quite frankly, resources that Netflix and Amazon had from the start. 
Yeah, I'd have to go back and look at what really Netflix numbers were looking like, let's say, in 2011 when they were first moving into development. Um, but I think to some degree it, it was also a deliberate choice to not bet big. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the book sort of tells the, the misfires and the misstarts on, on, of, of cable original programming. And a lot of that that slow start had to do with an attempt to really do programming on the cheap um, and to do things that were rather uninspired or basically to just simply mirror what was being done on broadcast but to try and do it with less money. And, and unsurprisingly, those efforts didn't work. Um, and it's really only once they are able to inject a little bit more money into budgets due to some co-production and then there's sort of two histories there, right? right. There's the story of ad-supported cable and subscriber-funded cable. Right, right. Subscriber-funded cable was able to to pour a little bit more money in and had a more distinctive strategy from the start. Looking at subscriber-funded cable. You, HBO. HBO specifically. At one point, you say, uh, The Sopranos' exceptional success has overshadowed consideration of the role of series that prepared its possibility. Now, one, going after The Sopranos, me and my Jersey crew... You know, that, that hurts a little bit. But <laughs> tell us about some of the shows that came before that were that you thought were overshadowed by The Sopranos. I think it's mainly Oz, right? And, and, and there, you know, n- nothing against The Sopranos. It's just if you look at the amount that has been written about that show as though it fell from, from God to the earth, right? Um, and, and, and no, and there was a prehistory that prepared its arrival that is important to understanding how that show was able to achieve the accomplishments that it did. And so in the book, I tell the story of how Oz came to be. Mm-hmm. And, and Oz was designed as HBO's first original drama Going back and looking at some of this programming that is now 20 years old, Oz stands up as probably still the most provocative thing that I have seen on U.S. television, wow. um, even 20 years later. Mm. Yeah, I haven't seen Oz myself, but oh, Alex. the setting, but you describe some of the scenes and you describe some of these settings, and I can imagine it being among the first of its kind, that just coming out and having it be just like almost a hammer over the head of a TV viewer who might not be expecting it. Right, and I think that notion of expectation is is an important part and and thing that uh, all of those early shows, whether on on ad or subscriber-supported channels, struggled with, which was that people didn't expect to find good programming on a cable channel, Mm -hmm. right? And so there was just this basic re-education of the audience that had to happen to let them know that, hey, you can come here every Friday at 7 or 8 or whatever, and there's going to be a new show that's worth watching. That that really, despite the fact that cable had been part of more than half of American households for over a decade at that point, uh, that just wasn't how cable was experienced or thought Mm -hmm. of. I mean, that was the era of ER. That was the era of the West Wing. That was the era of Homicide. That was the era when the the broadcast networks were kind of the only game in town for drama Emmys and things like that. Absolutely. 96, as the book starts, is really the the last years of must-see TV. Right. Um, And and, then that moment. And 
Certainly the rise of cable has something to do with that, but that's a significant piece of that transition. Let's talk about another Mm -hmm. network that kind of played a major role in the rise of cable, USA. Now, you focus particularly on two shows that kind of form the USA Mm -hmm. brand. The first one is La Femme Nikita. Describing Nikita, that was kind of one of the first of its kind on cable. Right, and that's certainly a a point of debate that uh, readers may take up with me is, is really declaring... Uh, La Femme Nikita as the first ad-supported hit. Of course, there are others, and I, I address some of them in the book. And, and it is, to some degree, an arbitrary dividing line. But, but that really is the first ad-supported cable series that really gets a, a level of traction with a general audience. Um, a sci-fi network, in particular, was doing originals that had a, a loyal audience, but it was also that very specific niche audience. And so La Femme Nikita was the start of something that was more like a mass phenomenon. And then USA kind of hit the big time with Monk, which, quite frankly, was one of my first entry points for mm-hmm. TV for grown-ups, like moving on from Disney Channel and Nickelodeon and things like that. But it really helped launch a major era at USA Network with kind of their famous blue skies sort of programming. One of the things that you said that jumped out with me was it was unproducible for broadcast. And why was that? Well, I mean, so that was the industry's decision. Uh, Monk was a show that was originally developed for ABC and ultimately wasn't produced for ABC. And it was an executive that had been at ABC during development that had moved to USA that that had literally taken the script with her Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately pitched it at USA. Uh, so, like, so that's one measure that it seemed too edgy. I mean, this many years later, you know, the idea of having, what, as he was called, the defective detective, like that, that is all it took to make it seem that the Adrian Monk character wasn't heroic enough to be a broadcast network protagonist. Yeah, it, it's amazing when you put it in the context, it would be kind of a perfect show for a CBS or an ABC or even NBC mm-hmm. kind of to air today. Right. But the other thing, part that's interesting about it is that for a variety of reasons, one, that original development by ABC, the show did air on ABC. They weren't original episodes, um, but ABC managed to air a few episodes early on. And then as a result of the writer's strike and sort of not having any new material, NBC, which is also the owner of, of, of USA, uh, aired previous episodes on NBC's primetime as well. And the episodes in in both cases didn't do particularly well. Um, you know, the broadcast platform is is broader than what you you get with USA, and they were rerun episodes, so it, it's hard to gauge whether or not that they could have been a, a broadcast hit in let's say two thousand eight or so. Um, and so it's just it's a show that has a very unusual history to it. And it's one that actually hasn't been told as much, I think, with this story of the rise of cable, because it wasn't doing the same thing that HBO and FX were, which were, those were really the the noisy forces of early cable television. And what kind of made Monk the perfect show for USA at that moment? It was different enough it had this protagonist that was unusual. Um, it was still very much your episodic detective show. Um, it was a blend of drama and comedy, the same kind of shows that you would find on broadcast network at the time uh, in terms of Law & Order or CSI. It kind of became 
the brand for USA. I mean, Psych premiered and let out of it. Covert Affairs, Royal Pains, White Collar, even Suits kind of followed that model that Monk built. Right. I think that's one of the things that USA struggled with, both in that early phase of originals in which they launched La Femme Nikita and in the early Monk years, was figuring out what is your brand when you are really a general entertainment network that, frankly, is drawing its most viewers through something like wrestling. Um, In the early days, also, the off-net shows like Walker, Texas Ranger and Murder, She Wrote were actually delivering big numbers. And what is the commonality? And by the time that Monk launches, and I think the really golden period was when Monk, Burn Notice, and Psych were on the air, and the notion of the characters welcome, Mm -hmm. um, and this idea that these are television shows like you might find other places, but the characters that are at the center of them are a bit different. What was really interesting about having both The Shield and Monk launch in 2002 and both be successful is that they were successful using really different strategies. You had FX and The Shield mirroring a lot of what HBO had done in terms of distinction and difference, but for ad-supported cable. Mm -hmm. And you had Monk sort of much more just a step away from what you might find on broadcast networks. And so this idea that there are multiple programming strategies available for original cable success becomes clear. One thing that you don't really get into in your book, but has kind of happened since kind of where you stopped defining the USA character welcome era is the premiere of Mr. Robot and the impact that that has had on the USA brand and how like they really pivoted around the critical and buzz success, Mm -hmm. even if there really wasn't viewership success to Mr. Robot. And it kind of completely threw them in flux for a while. Yeah, I talk about how... In that first phase, it becomes very clear that to have an original cable hit, you you need to stand out and and be different. The problem is that by the mid to late 2000s, you have tens of shows doing that at any time. And all of a sudden, that ability to stand out starts to become more and more difficult. And I think by the time we get something like Mr. Robot on the air, that that strategy is failing. So the first part of that uh, early 2000s period is about one strategy that develops, but by the end of that decade, there's a need for a, a new programming strategy. Especially as with USA specifically, Monk come, came to an end. Psych ended. Mm-hmm. Covert Affairs, White Collar, Burn Notice, they were all kind of ending after having run their course. Each of those shows ran five to seven seasons, or five to eight seasons. I think Psych ran eight seasons. But I digress um, into another topic. Another interesting parallel that you draw here is the struggles of Spike and male-dominated television in particular versus what ended up being the really strong success of FX, kind of starting with The Shield, so what made those players so different and what kind of led FX to stand out above the rest? It's a challenge in, in writing a book with this kind of breadth is is to I didn't want to just tell the story of the winners mm-hmm. uh, and the, the, the notable important milestones is basically how they're structured because that wasn't the case of most of cable, right? And so even though there are hundreds of cable channels and really barely, you know, two handfuls ever developed original scripted series. And and that's much of the focus. And so part of that focus on on Spike was to take a look at 
channel that struggled and a channel that is no longer with us, right? So it wasn't that this was a phenomenon that was successful for everyone. And and Spike was a channel that rebranded to focus on men in the early 2000s and also tried developing high-end scripted original series and was not able to really have something that broke through. And so that chapter really was just an effort to acknowledge that for every USA and FX that succeeded, uh, there were many, many more channels that uh, were not able to use that strategy effectively, perhaps because of not having the budgets and then also you know, challenges in just getting the, the necessary creative. And then with FX, The Shield kind of changed everything for them, didn't they? The Shield is important, but I think also the fact that you, boom, boom, in, in quick succession, also have Rescue Me and Nip Tuck. There's a, the great Landgraf quote, that, which is in the book, of really how important having those three shows in close succession um, really was, not just for FX, but actually for the whole business. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, it was that whole package, along with what was going on at USA at the time, that made clear that this is actually a viable business. From there, you have the others, such as AMC, really rushing in and and changing the landscape even more. Yeah, shout out to uh, John Landgraf, who wrote the forward for the book here. And one more parallel between cable and streaming before we move kind of more into streaming. One thing I noticed is how both cable and streaming did something very similar in their early days. Cable pulled from the broadcast pool of showrunners with... Tom Fontana of Homicide, and streaming has since pulled Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy and other established showrunners in order to form new programming. Yeah, I think I don't think it's actually the the Rhimes and Murphy that are the parallel as much as it it really was Spacey and Fincher with House of Cards. But you could certainly look at the fact that Netflix, or the other first thing that Netflix developed was that additional season of Arrested Development, which Mm -hmm. had uh, that established broadcast pedigree. And and again, I'm not sure, like, what is the alternative? Would they have been more successful with someone who didn't have a reputation? Um, And actually, the story behind Oz in in HBO wasn't that they went specifically after Fontana. Uh, He just happened to be the person with the vision that, you know, sort of fulfilled what they were after. So in many ways, I don't think it's surprising that there are known talents uh, to credit uh, these important early moments. And in some ways, as the, as the story of The Shield and that 2002 moment with Monk as well, you know, it's actually early cable turns into an, a surprising opportunity for novice talent. Um, and again, that had to do with the reputation of cable at that time. And it was the case that before The Shield hit, uh, you know, showrunners with names and, and, and reputations wouldn't go to cable. Uh, and, and so... You had cable channels doing all sorts of unusual things to try to bring talent in. It was something like at USA allowing really a wide array of exposure to directing, to writing that really became boot camp for young talent. Um, It was also the opportunity to produce 13 episodes instead of the 22 grind. I think we can look at the careers of those who were in that early moment and sort of see the way that someone like Sean Ryan was given um, a lot of creative latitude Mm -hmm. that 
he wouldn't have had uh, if he were creating for a broadcast network. And it's interesting to think about you know, how the careers of those uh, creatives might have been different if, if the space for creation didn't exist. Sean Ryan's an interesting example because after The Shield, he's done a lot of work for both broadcast mm-hmm. and cable. I mean, what stands out in my mind, though, is mostly his broadcast work. So the unit over on CBS, the Chicago Code for Fox, Timeless for NBC... Mm-hmm. Three very different shows, but he probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to develop them without The Shield. At one point you say in the book, it's not surprising that a company without a legacy television business charted the path toward the business of internet distributed television. And at that point, you're particularly referring to Netflix. Correct. So why was it not surprising to you? The fact that they had no stake in maintaining the legacy ways. There's a bit of, I think... It may be historical revisionism going on these days uh, in terms of the stories that we tell about what level of innovation was or wasn't happening at the, the broadcast networks. But I think it's really important to keep in mind that they are businesses that, frankly, didn't want to evolve, right? They were making really good money. Um, And so it's not surprising that they were trying to keep DVRs out of people's hands, trying to avoid uh, making content available video on demand. They had no reason to run into the future. Um, However, and and I do think that regardless of what the future of Netflix is, I think it, it has an incredibly important role in American television history simply because it forced that change uh, more than anything else. I think if we wouldn't have had a company that was aggressively moving into streaming, uh, we probably wouldn't have nearly the array of options that we do now. Again, a lot of what you cover in your book, streaming-wise, we've actually covered Mm -hmm. on the podcast before. So if you're a listener and you go and read the book, some of that stuff will sound very familiar to you. It'll just be better organized and contextualized and tell a story. (laughs) So one of the most crucial sentences I found in your book was, um, rather than killing the legacy television business, internet distribution expanded viewers' program choices and control over how they watch legacy-produced programming. And you kind of conclude that broadcast, cable, and streaming will likely be able to play nicely alongside one another. Why is that? Let's clarify which kind of cable we're talking about here. It's one of the things that I do distinguish throughout the book is the fact that cable is really two different businesses. The cable channels, which we have been talking about, and then the cable service providers, the companies we pay our bills to. And that's really the cable that we're talking about in the second half. The coexistence piece, well, the first part is to understand that cable service providers and internet service providers are now, for the most part, one and the same. Right. So they coexist, or they're receiving money for offering different services, but have all kinds of flexibility in terms of how they're charging customers for that. Mm -hmm. So those two are not competing against each other. Mm -hmm. So the broadcast, then, I think that's more complicated, and, and... I am not sure what the future of broadcasting is, but I think the easy answer is to assume that it's going to go away, but I don't actually think we have a lot of evidence for that. If we look over time, we see that new distribution technologies have changed playing fields, and and I suspect that that we are but at the start of that change for broadcast, Um, and, and I think figuring out what that path is requires really understanding what broadcasting can do and what audiences still need broadcasting to do that is different from what internet distributed services can do. 
And, and part of that, you know, frankly, just comes back to things like internet policy and the infrastructure that we have. You know, it's not a coincidence that whenever there is a major event like the Super Bowl or the World Cup, that people who are trying to watch that via internet distribution uh, have some sort of hiccup. Right? There are still capacity issues that have to do with not having a robust enough structure for mass use in the way that, as a country, we massively watch television. And then the other part is the continued regulatory uncertainty. The future of broadcast probably depends a lot on how we sort out net neutrality. So you devote a chapter in the book to independent television, which is something that, you know, is appearing more and more shows are moving from, you know, maybe online platforms uh, onto kind of regular networks like Insecure and HBO, Broad City and Comedy Central. The big focus of that chapter is on a show called Horace and Pete. Now, there's probably a larger conversation to have about the place of Horace and Pete and more specifically its creator, Louis C.K., in the larger context of TV, but what was so fascinating to you about Horace and Pete and its story? I think it was the scale of the experiment. It was precisely that it wasn't a production that was then put on YouTube, um, but that it was written, directed, and starred Louis C.K., and then it was also distributed by Louis C.K. Right. And so C.K. had built this infrastructure to distribute his comedy specials a few years earlier, and so, you know, in terms of really alternatives to established distribution, that struck me as more interesting um, or a, a story of a different nature than the other dominant story, which seems to be like, what is the effect of YouTube on the industry? And, and for the most part, you know, there's certainly a very important separate sector uh, that we're just not talking about in terms of influencers and, and people who aren't aspiring to be part of, let's say, the conventional television industry at all. YouTubers. Yeah, so that, that's not, a, not unimportant. It's just not what I'm dealing with. The relevant sort of connection there is, as you mentioned, the, the cases of talent that effectively is discovered on YouTube based on independently produced content that then their voices or their shows, in the case of Broad City, then get redeveloped and distributed through, let's say, the legacy television machine. It was, it's the fact that what CK was doing in terms of building his own distribution system and, and, and really the, the choices that he made, it wasn't ad-supported. You couldn't watch the first episode for free. Mm-hmm. And sort of you all couldn't of, watch any of the episodes for free. No, and so the fact that that, to me, was a real call to acknowledge that... Quality television costs money. Right. Uh, Drama, quality actors, you know, if you want these things, that, you know, the idea that that, that YouTube could be a space for all of that and that maybe it will get sorted out through advertiser support. And part of that is that that in the years, let's say 2016 that I was finishing the book and then 2017, um, we've really come to terms with the limits of advertiser support for internet distributed media. So part of that is a bit of a, a relic of the era, the moment in which it was being written when we hadn't fully had that reckoning. So what was the biggest thing you learned while writing the book? Uh, I, mean, I really appreciated coming to, to really see what the story was, that there really was a story to tell. Um, and exactly you know, how rich that story was before we even get to the, the, the internet disruption, which 
absolutely as important and fascinating and indeed is like the thing I spend most of my day thinking about these days. Um, but I, I, I really valued coming to understand what happened in cable because I think you know, not only is that important to sort of understand cable, but it's also valuable for these new distribution technologies because these stories tend to repeat. They provide frameworks to think about new things. And what didn't you include in the book that you wish you had? There were a couple interviews uh, that I, or sources, let's say, that just were not ever accessible. So I talked to a lot of the creatives of the shows that um, I write about. I talked to programming executives who were responsible for um, developing the shows or were at the networks and channels at the time. I was not able to ever get to Louis C.K., which I, I, I just had questions about more on the model of, of what, what he did with Horace and Pete. He'd been very forthcoming on his blog about the financials behind the original Live at Beacon Theater experiment, mm-hmm. um, and I would have liked to have had the comparables for Horace and Pete. Right. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, Netflix figures prominently in the second half of the book, and Netflix remains impenetrable and um, without comment in most cases. And so, you know, I, I don't need them to tell me about their strategy and things like that, but I, I would have appreciated just being able to, to check some of my um, presumptions or expectations um, that, that aren't necessarily, you know, going to give away the business secrets of, of Netflix, but um, it, it's difficult to write about these entities that are able to keep so much of their data and information private, right? So whereas I could chart the story in cable thanks to trade press publication of Nielsen ratings and sort of be able to see the trajectory of audience growth from from La Femme Nikita to The Walking Dead, uh, we all just, you know, kind of still put our hands up, you know, and shrug in terms of, is this a hit? Um, you know, do we divine? How do we understand? How do we know um, whether the content that's being produced on the internet distributed services, you know, how to compare it? We just don't know. And that's really, it continues to be a frustration. And the last question I'll pose you is from the closing of John Landgrass Forward. Isn't it the ultimate privilege and the definition of life itself to live inside a story whose end we don't know? Yes. I, you know, to a large degree, that's why, as a form, I prefer television to film. That those gaps in between and the, the way in which television mirrors life and that it's ongoing in, in takes place over time. Um, but it's also, you know, if I, I twist this to sort of thinking about what the nature of the project was, you know, it, it's the challenge of, of ending a book like this. I, I thought I had promised myself when I started the book that I would spend until 2020 writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that at that outset, I hadn't realized that 1996 was the starting point. Like, okay. I, I didn't know what cluster of events really started the story. And so... Right. It revealed itself to be 1996. Um, and so, you know, as I was, I had a fairly extensive draft together toward the end of, 90, uh, of 2016. The parallel of just calling it a 20-year history and ending it in 2016 um, seemed the way to go. But um, as, as you know, the story has continued, um, although the book has ended, 
Yeah, the story... As it always does. Yeah, we're definitely going to continue talking about a lot of the themes that you talk about in this book in future episodes of this show. And I think that's a good place to wrap up. The book is We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet Revolutionized It All. It's available on Amazon or MIT Press, and it is released March 30th. And now it's time for the last segment of each and every show, What We're Watching This Week. Amanda, what are you watching? I guess I've been busy because my answer's the same as it was last time. I'm still very diligently and steadily working my way through episodes of Shameless, which I am still enjoying tremendously. Um, Although I will say, uh, I have been watching the first episode of the uh, episodes of The Return of American Idol because that is uh, good family viewing in our household. Yeah, I've watched a few seasons of Idol and I haven't quite been able to bring myself to go back. Is it worth kind of going back to if you were a really intense fan for a while and then kind of your interests waned? I don't know. I was okay. never a big Idol fan. Um, we watched as a family the last season as sort of our first ever, like, not just kid content that everyone could enjoy. And I, I've been impressed, actually, uh, with the the reboot, such that it is. I think it it feels a little disnified in the sense that it's very positive. I feel like we're, we're doing the uh, out of LA interviews right now or mm-hmm. auditions right now. And it seems to overwhelmingly emphasize success stories. Um, and there's not, I can recall some seasons of Idol you know, kind of getting a little snarky. Um, I mean, the, in those... the bad auditions were a cornerstone of the show for a while. Yeah, and, and, and it, it makes more aspirational TV if you take those out, mm-hmm. um, which is not to say they haven't existed. But um, uh, And again, in the, in the judging crew, I, I didn't have uh, particular expectations, but uh, I'm really enjoying the, the chemistry uh, among the three judges. I think the ongoing question and issue for the show is uh, Ryan Seacrest's involvement. Um, and whether he doesn't play a big part in these early episodes. But Mm -hmm. at this point, as someone who's well aware of the questions around his behavior and the allegations that have been made, he's he's a distraction and and really running counter to a lot of what this show is trying to do. And and I, I think it may just be time for them to pull in a new host. How about you, Alex? What have you been watching? So I've got two series I want to mention here. The first is Super Crazy, and the second is just one I'm enjoying. So Super Crazy, Ryan Murphy's 911. I don't know why I'm watching it. It might have something to do with the fact that it stars Connie Britton, Peter Krause, and Angela Bassett in one of the most overqualified casts for (laughs) a procedural I might have ever seen. This show is just absolutely insane. They've done episodes like Around the Full Moon. They've had scenes where, like, a boyfriend proposes to his girlfriend by pretending to crash a plane and having the proposal be in the instruction guide. And, of course, it activates the girlfriend's heart condition, so he has to call 911 from the sky. I mean, this is just natural life events, right? What is the genre here? First responder procedural. So it's got a series of paramedics led by... And fire okay. department people led by Peter Krause, Angela Bassett is a police officer, Connie Britton is the 911 operator. Interesting. It, it's a very weird show in a very pleasurable way, and very good. I'm still watching it. Yeah. And the other show I want to shout out is Freeform's Grownish. It's a spinoff of the really damn good ABC comedy Blackish, and it focuses on Yara Sheedy's Zoe Johnson going off to college. And what I find interesting is that. It talks about a college experience that is very different from my own. 
it's a very smart show. I mean, the episode that they just aired dealt with safe spaces in a way that wasn't condescending mm-hmm. to either side of the battle and, you know, really grappled with the issue in kind of an honest way and kind of the way Blackish does. I mean, mm-hmm. Blackish really does a great job of grappling with modern day issues surrounding race and Gronish is kind of the same thing, except transporting it to that college setting. And I, I just, I appreciate it a lot. And I'm really glad that Kenya Barris and Yarashidi were able to kind of bring this show together. I know it, it predates you, but I, I wonder to what degree you see parallels between uh, the Cosby show and A Different World as the, mm. and I think it's a very clever way to handle the aging of, of your cast member, your ch- child cast members, and uh, certainly it lets you expand your story in some interesting ways. And the fact that ABC has that sort of family of channels in a way that yeah. would, lets uh, Gronish not replicate, you know, I think it's different than, let's say, the case of Cosby in Different World in the sense that you're not telling that college story for that same broad mass audience that's Mm -hmm. watching your family sitcom, but um, to put it in a space like Freeform where it can speak more particularly to the demographic. And it can speak more openly Mm -hmm. than it might have been able to on ABC. Like, I think it was originally developed for ABC before it kind of was put in Freeform's camp and Quite frankly, I think there are things that this show does that they wouldn't be able to do on ABC. And that's it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about Media Business Matters, you can go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page. If you want new episodes delivered into your feed as soon as they're available, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and on the Google Play Store. And if you do subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. It helps new listeners find the show. Amanda, where can we find you on Twitter? At Dr. TV Lots. That's D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can find me at Alex Entner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back soon.